Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing super good, man. I've just been on vacation and ready to get back into the grind. This episode was an, was an awesome one to kick off my work week, work week with. Uh, Ryan Sean Adams definitely brought it, and he... Uh, not only explained his bull case for Ether and why it's a triple point asset, but he defended it against uh, what I would hope is some good criticism on my part. So I definitely try to challenge him and at least, you know, kind of get some intellectually honest answers about what is actually happening. Uh, David, I know that Ryan's your guy. How do you feel about this interview? Yeah, I got exactly what I wanted out of this podcast. Ryan is a super smart guy uh, and he just really knows his shit. Uh, knows about, all about monetary history and, and definitely brought that perspective onto the podcast. Uh, Ryan was back on episode 21 forever ago when we originally talked about the case for Ether as money. Uh, since having Ryan on that episode, my ideas about the role of Ether as an asset has uh, evolved. So not only do I think Ether as a money but it is also a couple other things. Uh, and so it's also a capital asset and it's also a, a consumable transformable asset. And these are all categories that uh, were defined by Chris Berniski in, in one of his blogs, which I will link in the show notes. Um, but he, he pulled uh, three categories from Robert Greer's uh, 1997 paper, What is an Asset Class Anyways? He talks about capital assets, consumable transformable assets, and store of value assets. And as my ideas about Ether have uh, developed, uh, I've started to categorize Ether in my head as being one of three different things depending on what context Ether is inside of. And so Ether can be any one of these three things at any given time. And that's really, really cool. And so the reference to the triple point asset is a, is a reference to how uh, there are three phases of matter. And the triple point is when you finally tune everything and get everything perfect so that your your matter is actually operating as all three phases at once. I explained this a little bit more in the podcast, so I'm not going to go on about it here. David, that was awesome. Without further ado, Ryan Sean Adams. Ryan Sean Adams of Mythos Capital, thanks for coming back onto the podcast. Hey guys, great to be here. So Ryan, before we get into the subject of how cool Ether is, will you kind of give people a background on how you got into crypto and what Mythos Capital is? Yeah, sure, guys. So um, I've, uh, I've been here before, so thanks for, for inviting me back. Um, so I got into crypto back in 2013. I fell kind of down the rabbit hole with Bitcoin. Um, super interested in it, um, you know, kind of the the, the hard money aspect of it. Uh, and then in 2015, 2016, discovered uh, Ethereum. And that was kind of like a one-two combo punch. I knew that's what I wanted to do with my career. Um, because after discovering uh, Ethereum, it um, it seemed to me that, that money and Bitcoin was only uh, one of many possible uh, internet of value applications. That we could have other uh, applications. Um, and so it kind of opened things up for me a bit more, and I knew I had to jump in this space that it was going to be massive. So in 2017, um, started a kind of a capital structure, uh, and uh, in 2018, late 2018, 
uh, started a uh, staking business, so um, validating on various crypto networks. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of active in uh, a lot of different communities. Um, I would say primarily the Ethereum community, a uh, member of the, the Moonlock DAO, uh, participate in, uh, you know, Twitter wars and um, just, just um, give get general commentary uh, on the industry. Very cool. So a lot, I've followed you and uh, Chris Berniski a lot on Twitter. And I remember he, him and Placeholder released this blog that kind of stratified uh, things, uh, crypto assets into three different categories. And, and this is actually kind of where my thoughts on the subject of Ether as a triple point asset, as I call it, kind of really started. And so before we get into this conversation, I kind of want to uh, talk about what I mean by ether as a triple point asset and uh, in the world of physics the the triple point is a Convergence of the three different phases of matter uh, liquid gas and uh, and solids and if you Tune everything right as in you get the pressure correct the temperature correct and the actual um, compound Which usually it's water, but you can do that. There's a triple point for for all compounds you can get to what is uh, this equilibrium between all three phases where uh, the compound will liquefy and then boil and then freeze and then go through those three phases in rapid succession. And I encourage everyone to go watch the video that, that are, that's on YouTube that shows water going through the triple point. Uh, and it's, it's really, really cool. And, and the way that Chris Berniski uh, organize the three types of assets that crypto assets can be. Uh, we, I, and then you came into the comments about saying, talking about how if Ether seems to fit all three of them. And I, if, if I remember correctly, uh, Chris Berniski lightly agreed. He wasn't, he wasn't super hot on the idea, but I, I see it. I see it very, very much with you about how Ether is something that can be three different things all at once depending on its use cases and so those three categories are a, a capital asset a transformable or consumable asset and a store of value asset and uh ryan before we move on i want to give you the mic and and ask if you have any anything you want to talk about before we move on yeah no, i think it's super interesting i actually think um chris's framework uh, for taking a look at crypto uh, crypto assets is right on. I think he borrowed this model from some some earlier work by Robert Greer in a uh, a paper called "What Is an Asset Class Anyway," where uh, Robert outlines like three, those three types of asset classes. And um, you know, C Chris in his paper like kind of uh, maps some uh, crypto assets to those three types, which we can talk about. And I think um, the really interesting thing about Ether. And this might be kind of unique to Ether, is that it's actually competing uh, for all three of those asset types. Um, all of the other crypto networks uh, that I've seen, um, you know, including Bitcoin, uh, might be you know, competing as one or, or two of those types, but Ether is competing across all three. And indeed, like your analogy with sort of the states of matter, um, you know, Ether can be um, each of those three. Um, as expresses kind of a different phase. So I think the analogy holds too. Um, yeah, but like it, it could be really interesting to, to maybe get into some definitions of those asset types and what they are and you know how Ether sort of fits if, if you want to go there. 
Yeah, totally. So the first one and the thing that really gets me excited about uh, Ether is the capital asset side, which which is to me the big difference between Ether and Bitcoin because a capital asset is a productive asset as in it produces a, a cash flow, right? And so uh, if you buy a Bitcoin, you buy one twenty-one millionth of the total number of Bitcoins out there, but that doesn't get you a claim on the network, uh, of, on the Bitcoin network. Whereas in proof of stake Ethereum, Ethereum 2.0, if you buy Ether, you therefore have a claim on all of the transaction fees that go through the Ethereum blockchain. And as we, as the uh, ETH2 development team works on um, uh, on sharding and increasing throughput and increasing Ethereum's transaction capacity, that's kind of like this decentralized company because you can kind of think of the Ethereum at, at blockchain as a company. You can think of the developers as the workers on the company and they're all trying to make Ethereum's transactions capacity higher and be able to, to uh, move, just move more. And then all these things generate fees, which are paid to the ETH holders. And so not only is Ether the other two things that we're going to talk about, but it's this, also this thing that produces, um, produces more capital as you move forwards. And so in this way, uh, ETH, Ether is a little bit like shares of a company, but it's more like shares of this network. The only thing that's different about that is that, uh, these shares are always uh, minted every single block, right? And so every single block, there is a very slight dilution uh, of the shares, but those are paid to the shareholders of sorts. Um, do you want to talk about that before we move on to the other two? Yeah, totally. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a totally good fit for, and, and important to remember, of course, like for, for your listeners that uh, we're talking a little bit uh, about the future of Ether as an asset type once it's being staked inside of um, the Ethereum 2.0 network. But yeah, then it transforms, it takes on the shape um, of a capital asset. And so like a capital asset, as you're saying, is something that has some sort of a cash flow attached to it. So, you know, an equity would be a classic capital asset or a bond or like some kind of income producing real estate. Those would all be capital assets. And when ETH is staked, it essentially acts as a, a capital asset in the network. So you receive some sort of return denominated in ETH. Um, and that could range from, you know, depending on, you know, the economics and how much ETH is staked, that could, that could range from the low end of like, you know, 2 to 3% uh, annual interest rate to a high end of like 15 to 20%. Um, my favorite analogy for this is a little bit, of kind of like um, yeah, an economic analogy, so like uh, a nation-state analogy. So sovereign nations, of course, they they issue bonds. Um, you know, the U.S. issues, uh, for instance, T-bills. Uh, and if you want to stake your USD inside of a T-bill, inside of a, a sovereign you know, government bond, you can do that. And in exchange for that, uh, the government, um, ideally, when when interest rates are uh, on the positive side. Um, will will uh, you know, pay you an interest rate for that. And so I think of that as, as kind of similar. It's when you're staking ETH, it's like putting your uh, ETH into a T-bill. You are um, you know, lending the network uh, your ETH in order to secure it, economically secure it, and you're generating a return on top of that. So ETH acts as a capital asset in that way. And 
you're right when you say Bitcoin does not have that feature. It's not really planning to have that feature um, of like as an asset, as a capital asset. I think the equivalent in the Bitcoin network would be uh, essentially ASICs, right? So in order to uh, you know, generate a block reward in Bitcoin, um, you have to have uh, an ASIC now, which is, you know, so it's like staking, stake ETH is almost like a tokenized ASIC, if you want to think of it uh, in that way. Um, but with Ethereum, of course, it's, that's all tied to the asset, whereas with, with Bitcoin, you know, that's, that's an actual you know, phys physical piece of hardware that you have to go pr procure and then plug into an energy grid. Uh, yeah, so that's sort of the capital asset phase of, uh, of Ether. Totally. And so with the, I really like the bond market and an analogy, and I really think in like the, you know, 30, 40, 50 year time horizons, Ethereum is just going to be this gigantic global bond market where it offers these low risk, uh, low returns comparison to other things, right? Because if in the distant future, as uh, the markets saturate and become more efficient, we really shouldn't be seeing, you know, 10 plus percent uh, returns on your ETH, right? Because as as the efficient market hypothesis states, more people will come and stake their ETH. But the cool thing about that is with the bond market, you just buy a T-bill, right? And then, and then you put it in a safe spot. With the Ethereum blockchain, you submit your 32 ETH and stake, but you still have to produce work, right? Like you still have other responsibilities, which are node uptime, uh, computation power. You do burn a little bit of electricity, um, I think uh, if you have uh, 320 ETH, I think you're estimated to be burning, I think, $200 worth of electricity per year. Um, so there is cost to this as well. So it's not, it's not totally cost-free and it's not totally risk-free because there is the risk of um, like uh, your node going down and, uh, not, and then you being slashed and, and stuff like this. So there is extra work to be done. And I think that means that we should see ETH as a staking rate be uh, higher than a bond market rate just because of that extra risk involved. Um, do you have any thoughts on that before we move on to the next subject? Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, like if you run a, a, an ETH node today, it probably costs like 30 to $40 a month-ish, right? If you sort of amortize equipment costs, uh, something to that effect. And so there is going to be some... Uh, cost involved to actually run uh, an ETH node. So it is different in that way. Um, but I think that like the analogy is, is super cool because we like, uh, when we think of economies, we often think of like the US economy or the European economy or Chinese economy, all of these like nation state economies. But Ethereum is really an economy without a nation state. And um, the ability to stake uh, Ether um, is uh, essentially, um, you know, to provide security to this non-sovereign nation state. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's super cool. And I, I do think that the interest rates um, will um, be certainly more market-oriented than uh, they are in nation-state economies. This is because you don't have a, a central bank intervening and adjusting um, interest rate and, and bond rate prices uh, to adjust for, you know, various business cycles or due to, you know, political intrigue and interest, it will be, you know, it will be purely supply and demand. So if there's a lot of demand for ETH staking, 
relative uh, to demand for other uses of Ethereum, say locked in DeFi or as, you know, as a money or, or something else as a store of value, um, then the interest rate will be low or the, the issuance rate, the staking rate will be low. Um, if there's not a lot of demand, there's not a lot of interest in staking, then it will be relatively high. And that will just hit a market equilibrium uh, that should be purely based on market forces, not subject to uh, you know, nation state central bank whims. Absolutely. And you're totally right in the, or at least I agree that Ethereum is like this internet nation that's not a nation state, right? Like it doesn't have borders, it doesn't have geography, but it does have territory, but that territory is cyber territory. Uh, and so all of these things that we talk about uh, as Ether having, uh, they're all, they all exist on, in the internet. And the way that Ethereum is being built, like the, uh, the variable issuance uh, rate that you were just talking about, uh, these are all things that rather than having a central bank manage, we're, we're handing over control over to an algorithm. Uh, and hopefully we hand over control to an algorithm. Maybe we tweak it one or two more times just to really perfect the, the balance. But then we just set and forget. And then we have uh, Ethereum's hands-off monetary policy that, that Bitcoiners uh, argue that Ethereum doesn't have. Yeah, yeah, and it, what's cool about it too is, I mean, it's it's purely um, it's purely permissionless. So um, you know, in order to get a a passport to this nation state, uh, this this non-sovereign economy, Ethereum economy, you just need an Ethereum address, mm-hmm. and you have access to all of the financial institutions, all of the uh, decentralized finance protocols within this economy. Um, I think that's super powerful. I mean, I think that. Ethereum is really picking up the mantle that that Bitcoin started years ago when I got really excited about the the project of of, uh, programmable money and banking the unbanked Um, because it has this uh, financial layer, this decentralized finance, open finance layer built on top of it. Um, And anyone can enter it, anyone can transact, anyone can lend, can uh, borrow, uh, can receive interest payments, uh, can stake within this economy. Uh, so I, th- I think that's a really cool uh, like, like feature and um, like uh, liberating system that, that, um, that's being built here. Hey Ryan, really great to have you on the show. And uh, I definitely appreciate a lot of the thoughts that you put out on Twitter. I think that you might be one of the best memers in the Ethereum Twitter space. Um, so very prolific idea generation and kind of like, summarizing so i really respect that um very interested i mean i feel like your last take there and i don't mean to be kind of harsh but i feel like it was a little virtue signally um because if you actually look at what's happening in the third world a lot of people are using crypto but it's mostly bitcoin so although like you're saying like it's picking up the mantle it's not like bitcoin is not delivering decentralized money to um, people who need it uh, and don't have good sovereign currencies. So here's my here, here's where I think um, what what I mean when I, I say Ethereum has really picked up the mantle of of programmable money and, and banking the unbanked is so um, the issue with with Bitcoin because it's limited from a base uh, transaction perspective and. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have a uh, programmable smart contract feature set on the base layer. It's really limited in its banking capability 
by like central banks uh, or centralized banking services, uh, I mean. So like for Bitcoin to scale its banking layer, you're going to need a BitMEX for derivatives and you're going to need a Coinbase for exchange and you're going to need a Binance, um, all of these crypto banks. If like even in, in, in Saifedean's book, right? You know, the Bitcoin standard, he talks about potentially there could be, you know, a thousand different banks uh, around the world. And that's probably ambitious that essentially share uh, block space and those become the banks that everyone uses on top of, of Bitcoin, right? So from my perspective, um, like that's not good enough. Like from my perspective, we don't just want a decentralized uh, sound money and like base, base layer, monetary system, base money. We, we also need a decentralized banking system. We also need the ability to do decentralized loans, uh, you know, decentralized exchange, uh, we need the ability to receive like interest and have money markets in a decentralized way without a Coinbase, without a Binance, without a JP Morgan intermediary, or we haven't really, we don't have a platform that has the potential to, to bank the unbanked, which, you know, was part of the original vision of uh, a Bitcoin. And I think that's the piece that's being carried out in the, the Ethereum platform. So, I mean, there's a few things that we, we can disagree with and I don't want to push it too hard. I actually am very interested in continuing this kind of uh, analogy and thought process of breaking down these three asset classes. So I'd love to jump more into uh, the remaining asset classes that we haven't covered yet, but uh, definitely going to get back to uh, my thoughts on um, this concept in general. Sweet. Sounds good. We'll give you more time to think of some uh, retorts to that, Christian. <laughs> Okay, so just as a roadmap for our listeners, we're, we just finished up one of three total uh, like categories that Ether can be. And so that was the, what we talked about previously was the capital assets category, the Ethereum as a decentralized company slash uh, cyber nation state, and that Ether is a claim on uh, the underlying protocol and, and the capturing the fees generated by that, that nation state the, or the taxes, if you will. Taxes are a good analogy. Um, as we move on, we, we can get into the second of the third of the three categories, which is Ether as a consumable or transformable asset. Uh, and I think this is where the Ether is digital oil narrative comes in. Uh, because you need to spend Ether in order to make a transaction on the Ethereum blockchain, right? You need to you need to pay your your fees to the the uh, cyber uh, entity that is Ethereum, and so the the way that I kind of view this is you have your your gas in the, the gas tank, or you have the the ink in the pen, and when you ever need to go do anything or sign anything, you use up a little bit of this resource, right? And so if you ever need to go to work, you got to use up a little bit of gas. Or if you need to sign a contract, you use up a little bit of ink. Um, and I'm sure there are a couple of other analogies like, like that, that that would also work. But it's this resource that goes away as you use it, but just a little bit goes away. But eventually you need to top up and buy more of it in order to pay your your fees to the, your taxes to the, the Ethereum sovereign uh, cyber nation. Yeah, exactly right. Like, so like using the, the, that asset class framework, you know, other asset types that fit in under consumable assets or transformable assets, you know, those would be things like physical commodities. So, you know, energy, uh, oil, 
um, you know, precious metals like silver, for instance, that are used in, in commercial goods. And I think that is probably the, the best understood use case of Ethereum. Like, I'll see something on Twitter like, e you know, ETH is money, right? And then I get all of these replies that say things like, no, I thought like ETH is, is digital, digital oil. That's what you guys have been saying the whole time. And the digital oil analogy is, is still true, but it can also be digital oil in one you know, phase of matter to use your analogy, David, and it can be you know, store a value and a money in another phase of matter. So like when ETH is used just as a, a consumable or transformable uh, asset, it's basically to pay for transactions. So any kind of transaction on the network, so that that's just moving an ERC-20 or that's using something like Uniswap to make a trade, um, all of these transactions on the Ethereum network um, can only be paid in ETH. Um, people talk about the, the potential for uh, economic abstraction, so the ability to um, pay gas fees in, uh, in non-ETH denominations. Um, I don't see that happening. So for instance, uh, like I, I don't see um, Ethereum stakeholders ever changing from like using ETH as the, the core uh, you know, pay payment denomination for transactions because that would like break off an entire piece of the economic value proposition of Ethereum and <laughs> that would not be a good idea. And there's definitely be, been a push towards um, like EIPs, for instance, that like state rent EIPs uh, and, and other EIPs that are put in that, that when the actual ETH is spent on a transaction, it actually gets burnt. So it's, it's uh, a portion is not even going to, to miners. And I think that would further entrench ETH as basically the uh, denomination for all commodity network activity uh, that goes on in the, in, in the network. So like when you think about valuing an asset uh, as a commodity, it's kind of a it's kind of a function of of supply and demand. So if you if you're looking at like the capital asset valuation, it's pretty simple. It's dis discounted cash flows, right? Uh, net net present value of discounted cash flows over time. It's a similar valuation that you might do to a uh, you know real estate uh, a property that's that's income producing, um, but with a consumable commodity. When ETH has that lens. Um, it's really a kind of a supply demand function. How much demand is there for um, Ethereum block space and what uh, are folks uh, willing to pay uh, and what does that, that market look like? That will be kind of the determining factor of what the price of ETH is as a uh, transformable asset. So shout out to Eric Connor and his EIP-1559. Uh, for those that don't know, EIP-1559 does a few simple things to the way that gas is managed on Ethereum. Uh, so currently when you pay your, your gas fee, uh, all of it goes to the miner, right? Or in the future, it would be the, the validator. Uh, but EIP-1559, it, what it does is it cuts the transaction in half and it burns half of it and then sends the rest to uh, the validator slash miner. Uh, and the reason for this is actually a huge quality of life improvement um, for guesstimating uh, the appropriate gas fee. Uh, managing gas in Ethereum currently is a terrible UX and it fluctuates all the time. Uh, and so 1559, does this thing kind of kind of balances out the demand for block space over time, and uh, but the mechanism at, at which it does this is uh, by 
burning half of it uh, and then sending half to uh, to the uh, validator. And there are some interesting game theory uh, stuff about that that kind of makes this work. But to get into it, um, it what it does is it actually kind of, in my view, makes the ether as uh, digital oil narrative much more real than it used to be because you know when you burn oil it doesn't go into somebody else's, you know, funds, right? Like you burn your gasoline and it goes into the air uh, rather than, you know, back into the tank of somebody has else. It been, has this been implemented? Uh, no, uh, I think it's going to be implemented into the next hard fork. And if not this one, then the next one. Um, okay, yeah. so theoretical, got it. Yes, well, it's, there's, it's, there's a lot of consensus around it. No one's really, uh, you know, understanding that EIPs generally without uh, any, having any sort of contentious issue, they do tend to get uh, uh, placed into Ethereum. This would fall into that pattern. Um, yeah, and I, th I think it's important to note too that, that Bitcoin actually does um, act as a consumable asset as well, right? So like... The only way you can send a transaction in the Bitcoin network is by paying a uh, transaction fee in BTC, right? So, um, like, I don't think a lot of Bitcoiners sort of think about Bitcoin as a consumable asset, but it actually is. It's not a capital asset, but it is, it is a consumable when it's being used uh, to pay for block space. Hey, well, so Ryan, really quick, and this is something that I think you did mention is that Ether, at least as a consumable asset, and I feel like generally for with both of your investment theses, is kind of needs like this Ethereum economy to emerge. And I do want to kind of make a distinction in the investment thesis for Bitcoin is a little bit different than the investment thesis for Ether, where the Ether economy needs to succeed. Uh, the Bitcoin investment thesis is a lot more around Bitcoin becoming a money that is used worldwide and not necessarily dependent on like on-chain applications or need. Like the moneyness factor is the investment thesis. Um, so kind of would love to get your thoughts on that and why you think the commodity angle is a more appropriate view. So I, I actually don't think the commodity angle is the most uh, appropriate view for ETH. I still think that like the last category we're probably going to talk about, which is the, the store of value asset view, is going to drive the vast majority, maybe 90 to 95% of the value of ETH in the same way that it drives the, the value of Bitcoin. Um, but it is interesting that, that ETH does have these two other properties. It's a capital asset. It's also a consumable and I think it's, it's, it's going to be kind of a, a, a king of the consumable assets, if you will. Um, so I think that, um, you know, demand for smart contract transactions um, will probably far outstrip demand for uh, Bitcoin block space, um, just because there's so many other use cases it can service. Uh, it, can, it can transform all sorts of denominations of value, whereas, you know, Bitcoin block space can just, you know, denominate transfers of, of BTC. Um, but I don't expect like, like all of the value to accrue there. If you look at like something like gold, you know, um, gold has a consumable asset value too. Gold is used in, um, you know, as a utility in, in some commercial uh, use cases. I think it's like, you know, 10 to, to 20% of the value is gold is kind of this utility value, this, this consumable value. But the vast majority of the value of gold is, of course, it's, it's monetary premium. It's you know um, ability to to store value over time and its historic ability to do that. 
I think the same will uh, occur with, with ETH, uh, where it will have uh, a decent amount of uh, consumable value, probably more utility and consumable value uh, than, than Bitcoin, but it will also be a, a store of value asset and a money in that kind of that third category that I think we're going to get to. And I'd like to throw in my two cents on this one. So Christian, your thesis is that you know, Bitcoin is going to um, look to the outside of the blockchain to uh, gain its value, right? It's going to replace money because it's this hyper-scarce resource and it doesn't really need this internal economy to, to do that. And then yeah, your, your or criticism or claim is that Ether, Ethereum has this internal economy that needs to develop in order to have this uh, external value proposition, right? So in order for Ether to be all these, uh, all these three things, it needs to generate demand on the inside, which is like the DeFi side of things. Um, and that's actually kind of why I get so bullish on Ethereum overtaking Bitcoin is because Bitcoin doesn't have this internal side of things. It only has the externally facing side. Uh, and so it, because Ethereum has the, the Goldilocks zone of both hyper decentralization, but also, uh, also have, has good expressiveness on the base, base layer that we can have uh, decentralized banking or decentralized finance applications where Bitcoin has um, BitMEX and Coinbase, uh, Ethereum has DYDX and smart contract wallets. And so because uh, e Ethereum is generating these very novel use cases, uh, which will have rates that are uh, you know, non-existent. Like so if, uh, on DYDX, you can lend out your DAI for like 12 to 14%. And that's uh, save for contract risk, it's risk-free. And you're never going to be able to find those rates anywhere else because that's what you get when you take out a middleman. And so some of these rates are going to be only found on Ethereum. And so the inside of Ethereum is going to grow. And as soon as that inside size hits some sort of escape velocity, it's going to be something that you just can't compete with. And that's going to be the thing that, that bootstraps Ethereum to be this global infrastructure, this global public utility for the, that's ubiquitously found for the whole world. So again, I'm going to get back to the other, the third topic, and I know we're kind of touching on it, but generally speaking, my rebuttal to that is Ryan just said that the store of value aspect is the majority of the value. Um, so it seems like with ETH, there's a lot of focus on the the 20% and not the 80%, which is a little backwards. Uh, so I don't really see how ETH is more competitive if uh, the general protocol is designed to do so many things when only one actual property is going to drive the majority of the value. And that one property is actually um, what, you know, at least the current narrative for Bitcoin is, um, you know, whether that is what Bitcoin is, I can't define that, but that's what the narrative is. Um, but yeah, Ryan, let's get back. Let's dive a little bit deeper into your kind of store of value philosophy for Ether. And why, and specifically want to hear why you think Ether as a store of value is competitive or more competitive to Bitcoin as a store of value. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about store of values in general, right? So like the store of value as a, as an asset class, uh, they can be things like uh, like gold, something with a monetary premium. Uh, at some time, at some points in history, uh, silver has exhibited a bit more of a, a monetary premium as well. 
Um, and Ryan, I'm gonna let me cut in here and just say that this is the third of the three uh, types of assets that Ether can be. So yeah, we've now moved on to the, to the last one. Yep, exactly right. Yep. So this is the the third piece, the third state of matter. So um, you know, currencies, of course, can also be be stores of value, stores of of wealth. Other things can be too, like you know, art, for instance. Um, I think that um, in Bitcoiners have rightly pointed this out that. Um, you know, things like stocks, equities are also being used as a uh, global store of value, right? It's, um, it's generally not a good idea to keep your wealth uh, in a, an asset like a fiat that is being inflated away on a year to year basis. So the world chooses all of these different asset classes to store wealth, uh, you know, and, and equities is a part of that. I think that that contributes certainly to the total market cap worldwide of equities. It's just people trying to get out of uh, inflationary um, fiat currencies. Um, so um, Ether does act as a store of value asset. And, and you were talking, Christian, about like, um, like Ethereum has this internal economy that we've talked about a little bit in, in terms of like a banking system and decentralized finance. Um, but I would also say, um, you know, the, the Ethereum's internal uh, economy doesn't preclude it from being from, from also competing against Bitcoin in the external economy too. So as, as the internal economy of uh, Ethereum grows, in fact, um, it will also increasingly encroach upon kind of the external economy. We, we, we basically saw this with the ICO boom. So um, Ethereum created this, this uh, you know, token value transfer called ERC-20. The concept of an ICO was born you know, um, millions and billions of dollars were, were raised, uh, primarily denominated in ETH, uh, also in Bitcoin. And um, Ethereum had massive success on like the, the crypto banking layer, at being listed as exchange pairs on, on Coinbase and Binance and all of these various exchanges. So like that's an example of the internal Ethereum economy bleeding out into the, the external economy and being used as a uh, as a store of value, but I think that like one of the big you know internal aspects of of ETH as a store of value can be seen in a lot of these DeFi use cases. And my favorite example is really um, Ether's use in Dai. So essentially, you know, Dai is uh, is about you know eighty to ninety billion million, excuse me, in terms of of issuance right now, and all of that is backed by ETH. So it's, you know, like something like 300, 400% over collateralized. So call that like 400 million in ETH uh, backs die. Uh, I mean, to me, this looks almost similar to like uh, currencies that used to be backed by, um, by gold, right? You have this, this store of value asset um, that is essentially um, providing the value for a new currency that is being bootstrapped, um, you know, and you know, die die in this case is that is that currency. So in the Ethereum economy, uh, Ether is absolute king from a store of value perspective. Um, I don't see that going away anytime soon. So as the Ethereum economy grows, um, Ether's use as a money, particularly that that store of value um, aspect of money, continues to grow and grow and grow. And as confidence in the Ethereum economy increases, it sort of leaks out into the external world. And I think that the big realization will come when people start to take a look at ETH from a uh, issuance and monetary policy perspective and realize that 
all of the like digital scarcity meme that Bitcoin has had over the years uh, applies pretty close to uh, equally to ETH. You know, e e uh, Ethereum issuance is going to be dropping below 1%, for instance, uh, it's very likely bef before Bitcoin does. So once people wake up and realize that, and they realize that, that Bitcoin has less utility, it's less useful, it's kind of a day-to-day -day money that they're using the Ethereum network, and the Ethereum economy uh, for, for more things on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I think the, the scarcity meme that Bitcoin has will sort of lose some of its luster, and some of that will shift over to ETH. I mean, at least, at least that could happen. And um, I think the thesis of, of ETH right now is that the, the market's really underpricing uh, that as a possibility. So uh, again, I, I am not trying to contend with your thesis, but I do want to point out that the specific thesis is that because ETH's, it, so it's kind of like, it, you're essentially you're betting on ETH's internal economy to increase ETH's value, whereas you're not really betting on ETH's fundamentals specifically as a currency in competition to Bitcoin. You're saying, if ETH, ETH's economy is more valuable, then ETH will be more, will seem better than Bitcoin. So you're saying that you need that, the you need the internal economy to bootstrap ETH beyond Bitcoin's existing lead. Are you pretty much saying that if ETH does not have a successful internal economy, that it as a digital money won't compete against Bitcoin? Well, I'm kind of saying, not that it's one or the other, I'm saying it's both. Right, I'm, I'm saying it's both the internal economy and then also as a um, a store of value in in kind of the the external uh, you know world economy and the wider uh, crypto economy. So I think ETH actually competes fairly well uh, with with Bitcoin from a fundamental digital scarcity perspective, and I think that will become more and more obvious as uh, as years go by, particularly after. Um, ETH switches to ETH 2.0 and uh, completely nails down uh, its issuance policy. Um, and then, like, I guess the challenge with Bitcoin is all it really has is the scarcity meme, this digital scarcity meme. Um, and if that starts to get eroded away by something the market perceives as like equally uh, scarce, plus uh, you know, having this, this economy plus being used as a consumable, transformable asset necessary for like the internet of value. Uh, plus it has this capital asset function. Um, I think that like the, the trifecta asset of, of uh, ETH um, could definitely uh, compete against uh, Bitcoin. You know, like high level though, like um, I would say I, in the, you know, the long run, I totally see Bitcoin and ETH uh, coexisting. Um, I think that um, Bitcoin makes some trade-offs that um, virtually ensure that it's, it's going to be um, a store of value asset of some kind into the future. I just don't think that the, um, the market cap of, of Bitcoin is necessarily going to exceed the future market cap of, of ETH. I think ETH has got uh, a long way to grow from here. And um, I think, David, you've, you've talked about like, like value peaks. I think its value peak is potentially higher. 
And Christian, I could actually be convinced that if you just were looking at the outside side of things uh, and you just compared Bitcoin's 21 million proof of work to Ether's ultra low issuance proof of stake, I could be convinced that, uh, that, that Ethereum doesn't have that compelling of a scarcity narr- narrative. But that's, that's why we, as Ethereum people, love the ETH locked in DeFi side of things, right? Because that's, the, that's a component that um, we, we get when we have an, an expressive L1 blockchain. And that's also the benefit, that's the, the counter benefit towards having ultra low issuance versus um, uh, a finite supply. We we took a we took a, we made a bargain and said okay we're not going to have a finite supply we're going to have an ultra low issuance but we're also going to have staking and a, an expressive L1 blockchain and so every time that we generate this application like MakerDAO or Uniswap or Augur or anything that locks up Ether it's it's us it's Ethereum winning the gamble of having an expressive L1 blockchain and so. You, you lose out on the finite supply in, in hopes of gaining security, but then you also make back dividends every time there's a new killer app on Ethereum like MakerDAO that locks up half a million Ether. Like how many more MakerDAOs do we need to lock up a, a, an amount of Ether that will provide uh, investor or monetary premiums for Ether as a scarce asset? Like we only need a few more of those. And, and I would argue that the people that believe in DeFi are, are the population of people that are already convinced. Um, I, I would say that if, you, if, if we can get to a point where 10% of Ether is locked in DeFi and 30% of Ether is locked in staking, then that's definitely on the other side of this escape velocity that Ether needs to be comprehended as a, a, a hyper-scarce asset. Yeah, and just to add to that, like, I think we've, ar- like, we've already seen it. We've already seen it in one way. So I think of ICOs, as bad as many of them were, uh, as a, uh, a DeFi primitive for fundraising, right? And that um, was essentially a massive wave of, of capital that started the process of bootstrapping ETH into a store of value money. Um, so that's kind of the first wave. And now we're, we're entering into the second wave of open finance and DeFi on Ethereum that's, that's much more exciting and you know, much more substantive and less speculative uh, you know, with, with Maker and Compound and Uniswap. and some It's of still these- very speculative, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, but not everything is about leverage. This whole space is speculative, right? I mean, everything in Bitcoin is speculative. This this whole thing is, is speculation. But like Bitcoin, Bitcoiners have made the the very good point. Like, how, how else do you do you kickstart a money other than a, uh, a high volatility speculation phase? You need that. You need that for years, maybe decades, in order to bootstrap a new money. I absolutely agree. Now it's just being facetious. Yes. So to, to tie off the store of asset, uh, or excuse me, the store of value asset component of this, um, and it's one of the reasons why I think uh, a lot of Bitcoiners will hopefully one day uh, hate Ethereum less is because every single app, <laughs> every single application on Ethereum uh, follows sound money Austrian economics principles, right? Like MakerDAO, the the currency that is minted out of thin air must have or at least on average has three to four x its value locked up backing that that value and the same thing for liquidity and uniswap you can get your 
relatively risk-free returns on Uniswap if you provide the collateral necessary. And so far, there hasn't been an application on Ethereum that's built that doesn't have collateralized, um, a collateralized use of, of the Ether or its trading pair. Um, and, and so I, I think the, the, the first generation of applications on Ethereum are all going to run on sound money uh, Austrian economic principles that we all agree, I think we would all agree are the right way to start a network. So can I ask, like, like, so Christian, why do you, like, well, do Bitcoiners hate Ethereum and ETH? Like, because I know maximalists do, right? So if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, you absolutely do. But if you're a Bitcoiner, which is not the same thing, you know, uh, like, do you hate ETH? So I don't want to speak for most Bitcoiners, but I will speak for myself, okay? I don't hate ETH. I actually don't hate any altcoin. I think that altcoins are fantastic for Bitcoin. Um, I think they're one of the biggest part of the current Bitcoin economy. Um, and if you look at exchange volumes and what's actually happening is everything is really pumping through Bitcoin's block space. And effectively, all altcoins are like Bitcoin sidechains with exchange middleware. I mean, that might not be as pure as what uh, Ethereans want out of the decentralized economy, but that is what I see happening. Uh, I think that a lot of Bitcoiners are misguided and are just obsessed with sound money, and they're not seeing the bigger picture of how Bitcoin is becoming sound money. So I think that they're directionally correct, but I disagree with their assessment of altcoins. Uh, I would say most are hostile to altcoins because they think of this narrative that uh, we should just be focusing on Bitcoin. We should allocate all of our resources to Bitcoin. Again, I don't agree with that. I think that confusion in the marketplace is fantastic for Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a, um, Bitcoin is a very anti-fragile thing. Um, and so it benefits from confusion in the marketplace. Um, so Generally speaking, from what I observe, most Bitcoin maximalists think that altcoins are bad for Bitcoin and are a waste of time. I think that they're beneficial to Bitcoin. Generally, everyone would agree that from an investment, investment perspective, although this is not investment advice, that altcoins are bad investments and Bitcoin is the only good investment. So can, like, so can a non-Bitcoin asset, right? And I, I hate the term altcoin because like, um, I mean, I feel like that's straight out of like, 2014. I mean, Ethereum, like Ether is, is clearly uh, a separate, you know, asset than EOS or, or XRP or Litecoin. And I feel it's, it's, um, it's a mistake. It's misguided to lump, you know, eat something like Ether into the altcoin section. But let me ask this question. Can a like non Bitcoin asset ever become a store of value? Uh, and if so, what would that look like? So I think that there are already cracks of the maximalist armor and there's other people who look at something like a decred or something like that as a potential hedge. But most that believe in the store value perspective do not believe in Ether because it does not pass um, what they would consider to be decentralized um, as well as, uh, you know, not un as well as having um, a monetary standard that they can entrust really. Um, so they think that all this DeFi stuff, and I think that most of the DeFi stuff is noise and that the underlying foundation is broken. Therefore, it won't compete as a money. 
Um, maybe, you know, there could be something else. A lot of people will say that there could be a Pareto, but why focus on, you know, the, the, the 40% if you can capture the 60% with Bitcoin? So what's weird to me is this, like if you look at all of the, the assets on CoinMarketCap, right? There are only two that have like exhibited any substantial monetary qualities at all as a store of value, even as a medium of exchange or unit of account. That's Bitcoin and that's Ethereum, right? Like nothing else has, like Decred hasn't, I mean, it's, it's not been used as a, as a money in you know, ICOs, it's not being used as a store of value in, in open finance like none of these other assets have. So, and I, 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 what I don't understand, uh, honestly, I, I just don't, is why Bitcoiners are ignoring ETH as a store of value. I mean, you said it's not decentralized enough, like, but what, what does that mean? It is the most decentralized network, you know, uh, out there, uh, apart from, from maybe Bitcoin, you could make the argument is, is slightly more decentralized in some aspects. Like, I don't know what else you guys are looking for. I think the fact that you can coordinate is a perfect illustration of why. And the fact that you're building towards something that requires coordination is like future proof that you are centralized and are going to be changing the rules to the game. Uh, so I do think that that's a fundamental difference. Um, so, I mean, I would say that the majority of Bitcoiners see that in all other chains as well until that's not true. So uh, I think a lot of people appropriately understand that all of these things are controlled by a central group of people, early adopters at the beginning, and they have to reach escape velocity. But what Bitcoiners and myself, what we see is that Bitcoin has reached that escape velocity and don't quite see that in Ether. Again, like I do POV crypto because I think you should know about this stuff, right? So clearly I'm not like the average, like, crypto bubble bitcoin maximalist um but i still you know i still don't see ether escaping uh that kind of nation state filter so i kind of see two populations of people here there's the population uh of people that looks at ethereum core development and uh looks ahead to where it its goal is to be and then hops on board uh then and then there's going to be the other side of people that are, are more conservative, more reserved, less risk taking that, you know, might pay attention to Ethereum, but aren't going to quote unquote buy in until there are fewer and fewer and or perhaps perhaps zero hard forks and the, the core code is no longer changing and the monetary policy is extremely well defined and you know all these things and, and basically all of the hurdles of ethereum are are behind in, in the rear view mirror w would you agree with that christian of course if ether has to become a completely different thing for everything that you guys are talking about to apply so yeah it depends on where when you buy in well i wouldn't say it's completely different because we know what we want ethereum to look like in five to ten years and we are currently in the phase of building it and we've never really deviated far from that path from the genesis of ethereum even before it was an actual functioning blockchain i mean i would say like even even eth 1.0 ignore like if let's say let's say 2.0 doesn't even happen right it's going to happen i'm like i'm much more confident uh, about that than i ever have but let's say that doesn't even happen right eth 1.0 on its own it exhibits 
all of the three characteristics, well, two of the characteristics that we talked about, the one in particular being a store of value money asset, like that in itself. I mean, I, I think of, um, I mean, imagine if Bitcoin had like Bitcoin itself, it's 1.0 version. And then there was this parallel effort called Bitcoin 2.0, where they were looking to tweak a whole bunch of parameters uh, and improve the network. Like th that's just additive value to Bitcoin 1.0. It's not, it's not subtracting anything. So I, you know, I think there's just some confusion that, you know, with the fact that, that, that Ethereum is improving and the way it's improving is uh, to essentially, you know, stand up an entirely new chain, but all of that is, is additive to what ETH already is. And in the past it's been right. value. That's, that's yeah. actually not true though, because you're not respecting miners. So therefore you're not respecting the 1.0 chain. And I will agree with you that 1.0 is impressive. Like I personally think that ETH and DeFi is delivering on a lot of what smart, smart contracts and world computer meme, you know, was kind of saying. And I honestly think you guys should keep pushing the world computer meme because it's way better than DeFi. But ETH 2.0 does take away from 1.0 because you don't respect miners. And you see that there are other GPU chains emerging that do respect miners and respect their economic calculations. Um, so you are, you are attacking your chain security and Lindy um, and putting them at jeopardy for something that doesn't exist yet. Why do miners need respect? I mean, essentially what we're doing is like what uh, Ethereum is doing is it's- They're business people, just like stakers. I thought they're the slaves to the network. But they're still business people. They're slaves in terms of like the game theory doesn't let them fuck around and play short-term games, but they're still businesses and they need to make business calculations in order for them to continuously invest in securing the network. Well, I, I mean, from my perspective, the transition to ETH 2.0 will actually improve the security of the Ethereum network by getting rid of uh, miners, essentially. We are... Like they're becoming obsolete. So their ASICs become staked ETH, essentially. We don't need them anymore. Like that, like, so. Yeah, but you said that it's happening and not hurting ETH1. And it is hurting ETH1, just like I pointed out. So, I mean, the plan is for the ETH2 chain to actually finalize and secure the ETH1 chain, right? And to have kind of a cutover that, that makes sense. Uh, at the appropriate time, like, you know, 2000. But I understand the plan, but you're saying that ETH2 is 100% beneficial. And what if ETH2 does, doesn't work or breaks? ETH1 is going to be hurt in the side effect from that because you're hurting the miners right now. Sure. I think that you can do it in a way. So all I'm saying is ETH2.0, in my opinion, like if you like ETH1.0, right? And you, you're, you're skeptical that ETH2.0 can even work, right? then think of ETH 2.0 as it's just additive to what we already have going on in, in ETH 1.0. Nothing's you know, being taken away. And it's, it's being created in parallel in such a way that if it totally gets fucked up, like you can just stay with ETH 1.0 and there'll never be a cutover, right? I mean, I, it's true, it's, but you're also taking miners for granted right now and you're hurting their economic uh, predictions right now. But there's enough security, I mean, like, uh, the Ethereum, I and mean, there's enough security to, like, handle everything that open finance and DeFi and all of the use cases on Ethereum need right now. So, like, why overpay for security? Like, we've got enough. 
I, I think that that's something that is unknown how much is enough security, but uh, none of these networks are being attacked by nation states yet. So we don't know. Well, that's true. I mean, nation states is a whole nother thing. I, um, I think that if nation states like come to attack though, like we're all screwed. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think Bitcoin can withstand a, a Stuxnet level nation state attack. To be honest, I've never really thought that a nation state attack. There's, I don't think there's ever going to be the incentive for one single nation state to go after a, a chain until after the point of it being too late. Like it's, it's way too early for, their, for either Bitcoin or Ethereum, even combined together to, to create enough of an incentive for the United States of America to go on a full network breaking attack. And the only reason why they would ever do that is if there's an actual threat which we all believe there is, but we would have to convince them that there is and get, convince them about the value proposition of Ether, DAI, and or Bitcoin. And how, once, how could you watch yesterday or last week's Libra hearings without thinking that, that it's on their radar? Hmm. Well, because there's a, there, the reason why they're going after Libra is because there's actually somebody to go after. They, don't, they wouldn't even know where to begin with these crypto economic networks. I mean, most of them, they would know where to begin. I mean, definitely Bitcoin, maybe ETH, they wouldn't know where to begin. Right. Um, but Ryan, I have a question for you. Have you uh, read an article by Connor Brown called Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and that's great? I believe I have. Yeah, did that come out a while back? It's not recent, right? It was a couple months ago. Yeah. But really it was arguing that Bitcoin is pure monetary premium and that um, commodities that are used as money, the money, the monetary premium actually distorts the commodity use and it's actually less efficient. And it would be more efficient to have one pure monetary premium tool and allow all other commodities to be used strictly for their commodity properties. What do you think of that kind of view? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I know um, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, who you know, is fantastic, um, you know, everyone loves, right? But um, he made the comment that uh, this is a while back, like I, not, not that long ago, maybe December, he said something to the effect of um, it, it's, it's bad for Ether if the price of ether increases because that means transaction costs uh trans transaction costs on ethereum will increase right um you know, but but unfortunately he's completely wrong about that that's a totally what's that I, I saw him in a tweet thread uh and i think it was antipro who commented on it saying that yeah. the u.s dollar denominations of gas don't change with the the value of the changing value of ether yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there, there's a whole separate gas, you know, that's the reason there's a whole entirely separate gas market is so it can kind of, you know, flex up and flex down. And it really doesn't matter what the price of, of ETH is. So I, I think there's some misunderstandings in the Bitcoin community that like somehow a high price of um, Ether would ne negatively impact um, Ether's ability to serve as that, that like, you know, transaction uh, mechanism for gas, that consumable asset, um, and that's really not the case. I don't see why a commodity with uh, some sort of transformational, you know, consumable asset quality that has this utility value, you can't also be a, a store of value. I mean, gold is that to some extent. It certainly has industrial uses. Silver had tons of industrial uses, and it was 
Um, they had a monetary premium for centuries. Um, I think it's all additive, so I'm not sure that I buy that argument, but I, I don't recall all of the ar arguments that, that Connor made in his, um, in his post. Well, silver also has a ton of industrial value and it today has no monetary value. So something like ether could have a ton of uh, economic value and no uh, monetary value. Uh, but that would definitely hurt the ether, the ether investment thesis. I mean, and if you switch to proof of stake, then you need it to be valuable. Otherwise, there's no security. So, I mean, that could all just be FUD, but who knows? Like, uh, does monet, like, you know, the monetary premium just flee to the, you know, hardest money? Or is it going to be distributed amongst a few things? I don't know. So I think that's really the, re the reason why Ethereum's internal ecosystem is so incredibly valuable, right? Like the store value asset of Ether as capital, as collateral for so many of these applications, it's going to create the monetary premium because of the fact that you have to lock up ETH in Uniswap and because you have to lock up ETH in, in MakerDAO. All of these things that require Ether as capital will create Ether to be capital and will generate the monetary premium because of you know, Uniswap and MakerDAO and, and, and Augur and all these platforms are basically middlemen eliminating uh, algorithms. They're just, it's just code that, that replicates a middleman, but it does it on the blockchain. It all requires Ether as, as a monetary premium, as money, and then will generate the monetary premium automatically. I mean, that was the story of the, the 20th century, right? It's basically like uh, economic monies, like US dollars backed by entire nation state economies like beat commodity monies like gold just through sheer economic force. Absolutely. And, and so Ryan, to, to wrap up this, uh, that's completely this untrue though. They beat them because they, I mean, obviously their force allowed them to censor those things, but metals were not very transferable, not very anti uh, uncensorable. So there's a lot of things that are wrong with the metals that made them easy to be defeated. So I don't know, I, I just feel like, I mean, obviously we, our mental models are different, but I, I do wanna you know, bring up a counter again to, to your point. Yeah, I, I, I think our mental models are slightly different, but like I, so what's interesting for me is I probably agree with 80% of the things Bitcoiners say, right? And then it's this 20%, like this, this blindness towards uh, Ethereum in particular, and it's used as a store of value and a money that I like, I just don't agree with. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, I think that um, Bitcoiners would probably do well to probabilistically weight Ether's chances of becoming a money and a store of value higher than they do today. But I mean, look, this, that's what this podcast debates, right? You guys go at it all the time on the subject. Absolutely. And thank you for coming on and, you know, giving such eloquent explanations of how you see the world. And like I said, despite not uh, agreeing necessarily, I definitely very much respect and have learned a ton. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. I, I do think ETH is a pretty um, unique asset in that it's trying to become all three of those things. Um, you know, Bitcoin's kind of trying to do two. Um, you know, networks like Cosmos, you know, they're, they're trying to be capital assets and consumables, but not monies. So it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if ETH can really make this happen. And I think back to your, 
your your earlier point, David, I think that's you know what Chris Berninsky was uh, kind of wondering, you know, questioning is whether uh, ETH can can cross the chasm from a long term perspective and become the store of value asset. I'm I'm pretty bullish on that. Um, I feel like he's yeah. I mean, he should speak for himself, but he's probably um, you know optimistic but not entirely bought in that, that that's the case. And um, like all things in crypto, we'll just have to see what happens. Absolutely. Fortunately for Ethereum, there are actually some, not hard dates, but some, some dates to look forward to where we can actually get some, some answers as to what will be into the future. So looking forward to 2020. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Absolutely. Ryan, if people want to follow you on Twitter, where should they go? Just go to Ryan S. Adams on Twitter and you can find me there. And uh, if they want to learn more about uh, Mythos Capital, where should they go? Yep. Hit mythos.capital. And if you want to learn about our validator services or Cosmos, Loom, and some other networks, go to mythos.services. Wonderful. All right, everyone. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me both on Twitter and on Medium at Trustless State. Christian? Yes, you can follow me, CK, on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Remember, five-star reviews. We just got number 69, so someone else needs to get there and push us past 70. We really appreciate y'all. Thank you for tuning in. Ryan, thanks for coming on again. Thanks, guys. Bye.